1 Peter chapter 4. Begin reading in verse 1, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Let's hear the Lord's word. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. Who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead? For for, For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Well, in our reading in verse 6, to bless it for his own name's sake. Would you bow with me for a moment, please, in prayer? Let's seek the Lord. Father, before we ask for one thing, we're well aware that thou dost know every need we have. So we simply pray, meet the needs. Whatever thou dost see, meet the needs. Fill the emptiness. Supply, Lord, that which will satisfy the hunger and thirst. Give a a sight of thy Son, the understanding of the gospel, that will truly make a difference in how we live in this present evil world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. My text is verses 1 and 2 this morning. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. I want to begin my message this morning by asking you a question. What does the death of Christ have to do with holy living? To put it another way, what is the cause-effect relationship between Christ's suffering and death and the believer's victory over sin. What is the cause-effect relationship between those two things? Surely there is one. We're we're very familiar with the cause-effect relationship between Christ's death and our forgiveness, at least to some degree we are. We all understand, as Peter put it back in chapter 3, verse 18, that Christ is to God. We see that his death is the cause of 
that experience of us being brought to God in salvation. We know that God has cleansed us from all our sin forever on the ground of Christ's suffering and dying in our place on the cross. We understand that. There's a cause-effect relationship. We have often sung with gladness those words of Robert Lowry's hymn, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's cause-effect. We readily confess that justification, that legal act, that legal act of God that declares us to be as right as pleasing in the sight of God as Christ himself is based on Christ's atonement, his atoning death. It's cause effect. We also know as Christians that Christ suffered to leave us an example that we might follow in his steps. There's the cause, there's the effect. But my, my question to you this morning is this, are we as clear in our understanding of the intimate connection between Christ's atoning death and holy living as we are about the connection between his death and God's pardoning our sin. Are we as clear on that? Peter certainly knew there was, and that is why he begins verse 1, for as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. Now that phrase, for as much then, there's only one word in the original language, and it's usually translated by the word therefore. Therefore, as Christ has suffered in the flesh, for us in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. The words are simple. But can you tell me what that's all about? Look at it carefully. The first statement is easy. Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. Some have said that what Peter is dealing with here is he's encouraging them to to bear up, you remember that was part of what he had been dealing with earlier, to bear up under the suffering they were experiencing, unjust suffering. And that he's carrying on with that thought. The, the, the thought would be, therefore, if that's the case, Christ suffered in the flesh and died for you, and so you need to be ready to and willing to suffer and die for him. If need be, don't let the fear of suffering open a door to sin in your life. Because he's definitely dealing with sin here in these two verses. And he'll go on to deal with sin. While all of that is good and true, no doubt, I mean that there is that aspect of Christ suffered. Peter had already said that back in chapter 2. 
He'd already brought that up. Christ suffered, leave us example. Uh, it would encourage us to bear up under the suffering and suffer. If we have to die, we die for him. It's all inherent in what Peter is saying in verses 1 and 2, but that's not what that text is mainly about. It's not about an encouragement to bear up under suffering because Christ suffered. <clears throat> the first clause, as I said, is easy to grasp. Christ had suffered for us in the flesh. That's a very clear reference to his vicarious death. He died in our stead. He suffered for us in the flesh. But then what follows is not so easy to grasp. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. With what mind? If you reply with the mind or the mindset or the disposition of Christ, where is that even mentioned in this context? Peter speaks of the nature of Christ's sufferings and the purpose and the effects of Christ's sufferings. But there's nothing said here of the Lord's mindset or disposition. Not in this context. Now, if, if, if that statement, arm yourselves, Christ suffered, arm yourselves with the same mind. If that statement would have immediately followed what he said back in chapter 2, verses 21 through 24, it would be easy to get. I mean, look back. Chapter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also hath suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who in his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. healed. Arm yourselves, therefore, with the same mind. But that's not the context of verses 1 and 2. I should also point out that the usual translation of this Greek word mind it's normally translated with the word thought or thinking. Arm yourselves with the same thought. And that thought is all about the death of Christ and how it is to be used in, as armor in a believer's battle with what? The lust of the flesh. Right? It's right there. He's dealing with the lust of the flesh. Arm yourselves with this same thought. Somehow the thought of the death of Christ is to be used by the child of God in his battle with sin. Somehow. There's a cause-effect relationship. The perplexity index goes even higher when we read at the end of verse 1 that he that suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. Okay, now who's the he? At first glance, you would think it's Christ. 
He talked about that in the very first part of the verse. He suffered the flesh for us. He that suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. But how could it be said of Christ that he ceased from sin when he was without sin? He knew no sin. If the he refers to Christians, is Peter saying that suffering, because there's got to be a cause effect here, is Peter saying that suffering brings them to a point where they cease from sin? Is it misery? The follow-up question is, is, it mis- is the cause effect, is it misery that makes a man so holy that he stops sinning, that he ceases from sin? Because suffering and death is misery. You see, it looks simple at the outset when you read it, but it's not so simple when you begin to, what does that mean? The key that unlocks the difficulties is realizing that in this section, Peter is dealing with two closely related issues, the death of Christ and the holy life of a Christian. That's what he's dealing with, the death of Christ and the holy life of a Christian. When Peter says, therefore, as Christ has suffered in verse 1. He's drawing a necessary conclusion from what he said back in chapter 3. Remember, there's no chapter divisions here. Practically, it would have been better, probably, if there had not been a division right here. But back in chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Right? That he's making, in light of that, there is a conclusion that you, that you must draw. Peter says in verse 1, arm yourselves with that thought. What was that thought? That Christ's death brought a ceasing from sin for him. The death of Christ brought a ceasing or a resting, if you will, from sin for him. And therefore, for every one of his people. That's the link. That's the tie. That's what he's dealing with. Let me, if I may, unpack it for a moment. I have two thoughts. As I preach on Christ's victory over sin, the guarantee of our victory over sin. Christ's victory over sin, the guarantee of our victory over sin. So let me say first, please, that there is a victory over sin that is to be fought for and won by the believer. There is a victory over sin that is to be fought for and 
won by the believer. That is the only conclusion you can come to when the Holy Spirit tells us to arm yourselves so that we no longer live for the lusts of men, but we live for the will of God. It's that word arm that's so critical. Living for the will of God is just another New Testament expression of living a godly life. It's about living a life set apart for God, devoted to God. It is basically holiness. That word arm, it's only used, this verb form, it's only used here in the New Testament. It comes from a noun that refers to weapons that are used in warfare. Peter has introduced the the art of warfare here. The noun form is used, I think, four or five times. Just give you one or two examples. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, where Paul states that the weapons, that's the word, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but spiritual and mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Weapons. In a more, that's offensive, weapons, pulling down, attack. In a more defensive sense, Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, of the armor of righteousness. It's this noun form of this word, the armor of righteousness. And in Romans 13, 12, he speaks of the armor of light. So when Peter says, arm yourselves, He's clearly implying that we are in an ongoing war with sin. The very idea of victory includes the the idea of battling with an enemy that is seeking to conquer you. Arm for the conflict, there's a conflict. That means there are two enemies at each other and one wants to beat the other one. So we are in this war with sin. And what's the goal in this war? Victory. You don't arm yourselves in order to lose. You don't fight in order to lose the battle. You fight in order to win. So victory is the goal. But what does that victory look like in real time? There's two sides to it. And what Peter says here. Negatively, it means that we are no longer to live to the lust of men. Verse 2. Note that word no longer. No longer. Peter brings up their past. When he says no longer, he brings up their past. It speaks of a former way of living. The Holy Spirit is deliberately reminding them of how they used to live. That's vital, you know. I can only conclude from what I read in Scripture that such Reminders are vital in this battle that we have with sin. Do we remember that what we were and how we lived before the Lord saved us? Let me just give you a smattering to show the emphasis 
the Holy Spirit has made upon this necessity in his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. Paul speaks of sodomites, whoremongers, the whole list of wickedness. And then he says, such were some of you. He reminded them of their past life, but ye are washed. It was always in the connection of what they were now. But still, the Spirit of God in his word makes it clear, I don't want you ever to forget what you were, how you lived your life before you were saved. Such were some of you. You know, I imagine when they heard that read to them in the church of Corinth, there were some wincing memories. I mean, you, you, the, in, in the list of sins and sinners that were brought there, there were those in that congregation that were engaged in those kinds of activities, and they were reminded of it. No one tried to sweep it under the rug. Hide it. The Holy Ghost is, and he put it in the word of God to be seen for eternity. He wants us to remember. Ephesians 5, 8. For ye were sometimes, uh, better translation, once, for ye were once darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You get it? He's, he's, he wants, it's about holy living, walking as children of light. But in that context, he reminds them, you were at one time in darkness. Don't forget it. Back to chapter 2 in Ephesians. Verses 1 and 2, you know the verses probably off by heart. But I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about, this is the Holy Ghost doing again, reminding us of what we were. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. He didn't let them forget it. Down in that same chapter, he says, Wherefore remember that ye, being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, that at that time ye were without Christ. There's no redundancy with the Holy Spirit. If it's emphasized, there's a reason for it. That's exactly what Peter is doing here as he exhorts them to no longer live for sinful lusts. Why? To deepen their love and their gratitude to the Lord for what he's done for them. And to deepen their hatred for that kind of lifestyle. To deepen their hatred. And I tell you folks, it gets quite simple. In this battle that we have with the lust of the flesh, this battle that we have with sin, there's nothing so critical to you as having a healthy love for Jesus Christ and a healthy hatred for your past life. A healthy hatred for sin. They both work together. 
Matter of fact, the greater your love is for the Lord, the greater your hatred is going to be for sin. And vice versa. That's the negative side of things. Positively, they, we are in a battle with sin, and we overcome, we fight for and win these victories so that we can live to the will of God. That's the positive side of it. God has made known his will and his word. That's the long and the short of it. And that word is the supreme rule of our conduct. Supreme. Nothing trumps God's word. It is God's law for God's kingdom. Lord Jesus taught us to pray, did he not, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Now that presupposes we can find out what that will is. How can you pray that? How can Christ teach you to pray that? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? If you can't come to understand what the will of God is, Ultimately, it's God's word that Micah was referring to when he wrote in chapter 6, verse 8 of his prophecy, he has showed thee, O man, what is good. Ultimately, God has shown us what is good in his word. And so Paul will speak in Romans chapter 12, in verse 2, of that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What we may or may not do is determined by the written revelation of his will. What we may or may not do is determined by the Lord's word. What we must do, what we must do is what this book tells us we must do. That's the will of God. And nothing, no matter where it comes from, whether it's our own desires, interests, or the opinions of others, or the behavior of others, nothing must be allowed to persuade us to do what God forbids or to neglect what he requires. Never must that be allowed. What I want you to especially note in this warfare that we are fighting in, the victory we are fighting for, is how Peter tells us to arm ourselves. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. This, this word in the Greek uh, is not the same word that's used to speak of a mindset, of a disposition, 
as in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That is not the word that Peter is using. It's not about a mindset. The word, as I said in the introduction, refers to a thought. Arm yourselves with this thought. Emphasis on the word thought. Thinking. It tells me that this warfare we wage against this enemy of sin and the warfare that is waged against us takes place primarily in the mind, in the thinking of God's people. Primarily, that's where it's waged. He's dealing with their thoughts in the context of victory over sin. Isn't that the constant testimony of the New Testament? Three, three verses, that's enough. Three of them will make my point, I think. Romans chapter 7, verse 23, Paul said, and that's the chapter 7, of course, where he's dealing with this plague of sin. He feels in his own soul. He says, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. My thoughts. That's where the battle's taking place. That's where the battle's won or lost. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3. He says, I fear... Lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Their minds corrupted. Their thinking defiled. How they think about life, how they think about themselves, how they think about Christ, how they think about the will of God. That's what Satan did with Eve. He got into her mind. He knew where to go. If I can affect her thinking, I can affect her living. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, Paul is writing to believers are really under it, under tremendous persecution. He says, for consider him Oh, 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 now we're, we got to stop and think. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. The minds. The war that's being waged is against our minds. Understanding our knowledge of the truth in this warfare. Before there is ever outward manifestation of sin in the life, there has been an inward corruption by sin in our mind, in our thinking. The warning Paul gave in Hebrews 12 was about fainting in their minds. If they failed, 
to consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners. The word consider means to think over, to ponder. He knew that the biggest battle they were facing was not from their enemies out there. It wasn't from their persecutors. The biggest enemy they were facing was the enemy of sin and Satan attacking their minds and their thinking. He says, you're not thinking right. You don't consider him. You're not thinking right. In that verse in 2 Corinthians 11 that I read, Paul indicates that Satan deceived Eve by corrupting her mind, her thinking. How does he do that? we, We know what his intent is. We know what he is wanting us to do. It's to break the law of God, to not do the will of God. That's what he's after. He knows that's what God wants from us, and he's intent on having just the opposite take place. So he comes to us and seeks to uh, get our mind thinking wrong thoughts. How does he do it? Now remember that our, our warfare is not carnal but spiritual. You could quote it, we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness in heavenly or high places. And you can be dead on sure that the devil knows exactly what Peter wrote in verse 1. There is no doubt in my mind that he knows exactly that Peter said, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind or thought or thinking. That's why he always strives to to corrupt, to, to defile, to pervert our thinking because wrong living always proceeds from wrong thinking. Haven't you found yourself? I mean, this this is just reality. You have a conscience and a conviction that says X, Y, Z is wrong. Maybe it's an opinion of somebody else. Maybe it's just your own interests and desires. You have a conviction, a conscience based upon what you know about the word of God that this is not pleasing. It's not according to the will of God. It's, it's totally against that. But then the thought comes, maybe, maybe it's okay. Maybe in this situation it's all right. After all, so-and-so does it. Do you not see that is the devil trying to pervert the thinking? (laughs) And when after you have listened to that and that thought process has been changed to that which is against the will of God and you sin against the Lord, why? 
Why? I knew better. You lost a battle in your mind. Nothing, nothing ever justifies sin. Nothing. If God says no, that's it. If God says yes, that's what you do. He requires, he forbids. And he's made his will known in his word. So that's exactly why the devil looks for every opportunity to insert into your mind and into my mind any thought, any image that is wicked, perverse, worldly, and unclean. That's what he's about. He wants to change our thinking. Corrupt it. He knows what follows when we're not thinking right. Anything that stands in opposition to the will of God as revealed in the word of God, Satan will use it and try to influence your thinking so that it runs completely counter to holy living. seem to forget that we must be vigilant therefore about what we read what we watch the kind of company that we keep the places we go the battle is always always for your mind. Yes, every Christian has a new mind, a new mind in Christ, but there is still within every Christian an old mind, an old way of thinking that is ready to listen to Satan's subtle suggestions. Ready to listen. I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. Tell me, what, why, why has there been this endless repetition throughout the history of the Church of Christ and throughout the history of individual Christians where God's people leave their first love, they backslide. At whatever level you want to talk about, the world comes in like a flood and God has to revive them again. You know personally what that's about. You have been there and done that. And if you say you haven't, then you are really deceived because you have. We are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And the, the accounts of Scripture are so, so prevalent with that happening. The best of the best. 
Why does that take place? Because there was a failure to arm the mind with the very truth that Peter sets down in this chapter. He's giving them what they need to know to win the victory over sin and the lust of the flesh. You arm yourselves with this, you'll be victorious. You don't, you'll have wrong thinking. Every unvisited prayer closet, every unopened Bible, every cold heart, every backsliding, every idol built can all be traced back to a mind that has become defiled, a way of thinking that has gone wrong. And has gone so wrong at times that that which you once decried as sin is now something acceptable. The devil's done a number. He's changed the thinking. And the living follows. That is why I make this point. There is victory over sin that is to be fought and won. But I'm happy to be able to stand here this morning. You thought I was done. That's the first point. I won't be as long on the second, but I will make the point that I need to make. I am happy to be able to stand here this morning and, ha- and tell you that the story in this warfare doesn't end there because the gospel doesn't end there. My second point is there is a victory over sin that has already been fought for and won. That's what Peter is saying here. Here's the question. Just just what are we supposed to arm our minds with in this battle against sin and Satan's attempts to corrupt our thinking and lead us into sin and away from the will of God? To answer that question, we need to look once again closely at verses 1 and 2. Let me give you a slightly different rendering of that last half of verse 1. Arm yourselves also with this same thought. Now comes a thought. That he who has suffered in the flesh has been made to cease from, or I could put it, to be done with sin. First, suffered in the flesh is simply another way of saying he died. That's a common expression, he died. This same thought that Christians are to arm themselves with, therefore, centers on, and this is the context, going back to chapter 3, verse 18, this centers on the atoning death of Jesus Christ. You, You talk about or try to think about holy living and victory over sin, apart from that, It will end in disaster. You will live in defeat. You will live in depression. You will live in discouragement. You will live in fear. You won't have peace. Any uh, any thinking and attempt at living a holy life apart from centering on the death of Jesus Christ, the atoning death of Christ, is going to end in failure. It will end in victory. This is what Peter is driving home here. 
what, 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 what they needed to think about to arm their mind with is that when Christ died, he died to sin. Christ died to sin. He was done with it. I'll take you to that reference where it says that in Romans 6 in a moment, but right now, he died to sin. That means he was done with it. That throws a little bit more light, doesn't it, on that cry, Tetelestai, finished, that he cried from the cross. Finished. I'm finished with sin. He came into this world, as you know, to be our sin bearer. He was held as accountable, chargeable, liable for all of our sins. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53. The Lord laid on him, charged him with the iniquities of us all. He was charged with the guilt of our sins. He who knew no sin became sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, became sin for us. That means he was treated as if he were a criminal. He was treated by God as as if he were a lawbreaker. Because... He had to be punished for our sins. And he was punished with the infinite wrath of God for those sins. And he suffered. And he died because of our sin. And what all of that means is that Christ... Through his suffering, through his death, made a complete end of sin. Christ, he ceased. He made a complete end of sin. He was completely victorious over sin. Completely. He did not fail. He succeeded in all that he set out to do regarding our sin. Now carefully watch what Peter is saying when he writes, Arm yourselves likewise with the same thought. For he that suffered in the flesh, that is, he who died hath ceased from sin. That's the Christian. That's the Christian. When Christ died, he died to sin. He was done with it. He was absolutely victorious over it in every way. And now Peter says, you also died, he that suffered in the flesh. And therefore, you have ceased from sin. You are completely victorious over sin. That's the statement. (laughs) How can that be? 
Peter is referring here to that legal and spiritual union that every believer has with Jesus Christ. In other words, when Christ died, I died. When Christ died to sin, I died to sin. When Christ won complete, absolute victory over sin, I won complete, absolute victory over sin. His victory is my victory. His being once and for all done with sin is my being done once and for all with sin. Is Peter saying here when he says they cease from sin that Christians no longer sin? If we say that we have no sin, John wrote, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Romans 7 would not have been written by Paul if that was the case. He's not saying that Christians don't sin. That's why he says arm yourselves. But the the Holy Spirit is saying that every one of Christ's people, everyone who died in Christ on the cross, this is the basis for it all, everyone who died in Christ on the cross, they are done with the kingdom of sin. They have been delivered out of the kingdom of sin. They are no longer under the dominion of sin. Isn't that, isn't that what Paul said? Sin shall not have dominion over you. Do you think he meant you're not going to sin? If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. No, but there is a victory. He said in Romans 5 at the very end, after saying that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, sin had reigned over them. That was their past. Sin had reigned. It had held absolute sovereign control over them. They had no ability, no power at all to break themselves from the bondage of sin. Sin had reigned. But now grace reigns through Jesus Christ. Now there's a new king. Now there's a new master. You are done with the reign of sin. You are done with the dominion of sin. Sin will not have dominion over you. Satan will no longer be able to tyrannize you as he did when you were lost. You died in Christ. His victory was your victory. Now turn to Romans 6. Romans 6. I told you I was going to show you what he meant from ceasing from sin. How Christ ceased from sin. Three things he says. Verse 2. Romans 6 verse 2. How shall we that are dead to sin? We are dead to sin. Fact. He's not talking about the mortification of sin. He'll deal with that. That's not what he's talking about. We're dead to the reign of sin. It can't bring us into a place with kingdom bondage, chains that can't be broken. Verse 7. He that is dead is freed from sin. 
I won't take the time to go into all the whys and wherefores, but that word freed means he's justified from sin. He's freed from its guilt, freed from its condemnation. He that is dead. So we are dead to sin. That's first. He that is dead is is freed from sin. Verse 8. If we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Dead to sin. If dead to sin, we're freed from it. Why? Because we're dead with Christ. We died to sin. We have been freed from sin. Why? Because we died with Christ. Look down at verse 10. For in that he died, Jesus now, for in that he died, he died, he died unto sin. Once, and that means once and for all and forever. He's done with it. He died unto sin once. Likewise, reckon ye yourselves to be dead unto sin. There is a victory over sin in the life of every Christian that has already been fought and won. And we weren't the ones doing the fighting. And we weren't the ones that won the victory. It was Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors through him because of that. Now, do you see, at least I hope you began to see, on that very ground, Peter says, here's how you used to live but you no longer live that way. You died to sin because Christ died to sin. Sin is not going to have dominion over you. It can't have dominion over you. Now, that is the best defense, the best protection, the best weapon when Satan comes to us and seeks to bring us into sin. We will never ever again be in bondage to sin. We will never ever again be in Satan's kingdom. That will never happen. We died to sin in Christ. Grace reigns through Jesus Christ. You see, if you don't take if that is not the way you guide your thinking, if that, if, those aren't, if that isn't the truth that forms and molds your thinking about this war with sin, you have one other option. And it comes right down to the law. I'm going to try to do better. I'm going to try to obey more commandments. It's good to try to do better. But the law was never intended to be the, the ground of our holy living. Here's the truth. Years, ago, years and years ago now, you'll know how long it would I tell some of you, 
uh, I was a member of Mount Calvary Baptist in Greenville, and at that point in time, uh, Jesse Boyd was still alive. But that Sunday, when I was there in the service, Mark Minnick was preaching. And to this day, I remember the illustration he was giving about how this dominion of sin has ceased. He described the true story of a sailor, and he had gotten his discharge papers. And he was walking off the ship, and uh, it was the master chief who shouted at him, whatever it was. He was a, uh, a, an unenlisted. Barked an order at him. He reached into his pocket and said, I've got my papers. I don't listen to you anymore. I am no longer under your power. I am free. That's the gospel. That's the truth that must form and mold our thinking. It centers on the atoning death of Christ and our union with him in that death. You see, we can obey the Lord. Don't tell me that you can't. We can obey the Lord. I'll go further. We will obey the Lord. We will obey him. Peter is stating facts about what these people, how they were now living. You don't live like this anymore. Arm yourselves with that truth. May God write his word on our hearts for his name's sake. Can we bow in prayer for a moment, please? Let's pray. Father in heaven, my, how glorious, how soul-satisfying the gospel of Jesus Christ is. We thank thee, Lord, that when we had no answer for our sin, thou hadst an answer, the only answer, the only remedy for this plague. Show us, Lord, how we can arm ourselves with this same thought. And Lord, remind us of what we were before we were saved, the sins we committed, the life we lived, and that we are no longer that. We are done with sin. O oh Lord, for grace to be holy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen.